Welcome to ShopCast, talking retail strategy with your host, Michael Dart. In this program, we'll spotlight the changes you need to know about in the world of retail shopping and help you plan for the future of the industry. Now, here is Michael Dart. Hello and welcome to ShopCast, the podcast that talks about everything that's going on in the retail and consumer world today. Uh, It's a provocative, thoughtful show that hopefully gets deeply into the topics that matter. I'm your host. I'm Michael Dart. I'm a partner at AT Carney and co-author with Robin Lewis of two books, The New Rules of Retail, and most recently, Retail's Seismic Shift. Today, we're going to be focusing on what the consumer wants, how their needs are changing, and fundamentally, how that is shaping and redefining our retail landscape. Uh, Obviously, there are a number of dramatic changes taking place, and we're going to go deep into those. I've got two great guests, uh, Mark Cohen. He's currently Director of Retail Studies and an adjunct professor at Columbia Graduate School of Business. And if you haven't had the chance, I would suggest you go to Forbes.com or the Robin Report, uh, search under Mark's name, and you'll find some really interesting, provocative articles on retail on retailers and also just uh, some great ideas on what's actually happening out there. Uh, So uh, great to have Mark joining us today. Second guest is Mike Brown. He's a partner alongside me at AT Kearney and he's just written a very interesting piece on the future of malls. And uh, contrary to a lot of people, Mike is actually pretty optimistic about the future of physical retail and I want to explore that with him. I I have uh, a whole series of questions about what I think is going to happen with malls and with retailers. And so I'd like to, uh, to probe that and get, uh, get into what he thinks is going to happen and what's driving that from the consumer's perspective. Before I get to my guests, what I'd like to do, though, is to share a few relevant ideas on today's topic that come directly out of our book, The Retail Seismic Shift, and lay some groundwork, at least on how I'm thinking about what's happening at retail and what I think are some of the, the fundamental drivers. So there are many arguments in the book, but let me just highlight a couple. The first one is that there's a massive oversupply of material products in our economy, in fact, in almost all developed economies around the world. And that that oversupply is really fundamentally changing the way in which the consumer is interacting with retailers, what they're buying, why they're buying it, how they're buying it. In many ways, it's enabling and facilitating the end of mass markets. We like to refer to this as the demassification of our economy, where you see increasing number of niche products, niche brands, the concept of personalization is emerging. And because there's so much product choice, uh, this is facilitating and enabling that change. So what does that do in terms of what the, the customer wants, what they value, and how are they interacting with retailers? There are really three big things that stand out. A lot of things, obviously, but three that I think are really worth focusing on. The first is that convenience is becoming more and more important. Uh, Obviously, with the uh, prevalence of online retailers, the incredible job that Amazon's done, uh, folks like Uber and Lyft, the consumer just expects convenience now. They want to know where a product is. They want to be getting into the shops easily. They want it delivered on time. They want to basically get everything on their schedule. The whole idea of frictionless commerce, both online and offline, is becoming increasingly important. So convenience is king, and there's a lot of ramifications of that. Second big thing is that consumers are increasingly valuing experiences. In a world where there's an incredible amount of product, product proliferation everywhere, the consumer says, well, I'm going to go to a store or a place where there's an incredible experience for me, where it's fun, where it's engaging, where I can really sort of have a great trip and I feel really good about the purchases that I make in that particular environment. That has been going for some time. It's going to increase and it's going to accelerate. And the whole definition of what is a great experience is going to be redefined as a lot of people invest in technology, entertainment centers, uh, restaurants, you name it. This is going to be the future of, of a lot of malls and a lot of stores. The final aspect of the value shift for the consumer is all around meaning and engagement. The consumer wants to be actively involved as well. This whole notion of community is coming back to the fore, and that's driving a lot of changes as well. The best example that I have for that, I think, is the farmer's market. You go to a farmer's market, and it's just packed 
people are buying the same produce that's quite frankly available in almost every supermarket. But with the band playing, you talk to people, you're interested in the farms, there's a real community feeling. And because there's so much product, the consumer is becoming increasingly focused on valuing that sense of community and also increasingly focused on understanding and wanting to align themselves with the values of the retailers and the brands that they buy. This is going to become, I think, increasingly important in the future as well. And so you're going to see more and more authentic brands, more and more authentic resale outlets, stores, shops, places emerging. What does this all mean? Well, I'm going to lay a marker down here, which I'd love my guests as we go through the conversation to to think about. If there's roughly 1,400 malls across the United States, I expect 50% of them to disappear or certainly not to achieve a significant economic return. Certainly there'll be two, three, maybe more, uh, 100 uh, great malls with great entertainment, great spaces, a lot of investment. They can justify the capital deployed to make those places sparkling. But a lot of places are going to fall by the wayside, and that's going to be profound. So expect to see an incredible repurposing on the malls because of the way the consumer's needs are changing. The whole word store will disappear. Why do we use the word store? It's because we used to store product in in these stores and retail outlets, and, and that's why. But over time, it's going to be a flow of goods. There'll be showrooming. There'll be just experiences. We're not going to refer to the word store. It's going to become anachronistic. Uh, we're going to see local community stores start to emerge and grow faster. We're already seeing that a lot in, in the book space where local books have become Um, Bookstores have become incredibly prevalent and brought themselves back, and that's going to become increasingly important. Lots of stores becoming localized. And finally, we're going to see a massive increase in online, whether that's 30, 40, 50% of stores or shopping. It's going to be done online by certain categories. So fundamental changes. Uh, We go into a lot more detail on those, but I just wanted to lay that groundwork before we get to our guests. So, switching to our guest. First guest is uh, Mark Cohen. And uh, Mark, interestingly enough, actually has a degree in electrical engineering. You wouldn't necessarily think about that as being the, uh, uh, the precursor for a retail career, but he's had an outstanding retail career, a multiple CEO. Most recently, he was chairman and CEO of Sears Canada, uh, but great experiences at Sears Robox, Bradley's, uh, The Gap, Lord & Taylor, Mervyn's, the list goes on. Uh, Since 2006, he's actually been involved in academia, uh, contract professor at Columbia's University's Graduate School of Business, as I mentioned. He teaches courses in retail leadership, fundamentals, and he's currently the adjunct professor, as I uh, said earlier. Mark, welcome to the show. Good to be talking with you. My first question, and I love to ask this to every guest, is what got you into retail? You have a degree in electrical engineering, and yet here you are having spent your entire time in retail. What uh, what led you down that path, and what have you found to be so engaging to keep you in it? Well, never under never underestimate the power of a serendipitous event. I had absolutely no interest, no knowledge, no predisposition to anything involving retail, or frankly, the consumer space. I did know when I graduated uh, with an undergraduate degree in engineering that the uh, the the uh, military industrial complex was going through something of a recession. And so uh, between that and an impending low draft lottery number, I jumped into graduate school. You could do it then directly from uh, your undergraduate um, um, studies. And I was busily looking for a job, um, uh, you know, with the Grumman's and IBM's of the world. Uh, I had had served six months overseas as an engineer in the middle of my MBA program, but I was a math science Sputnik kid, and that's where I was headed. And I signed up for an interview with a department store called Abraham and Strauss as a favor to a classmate who was afraid that the interviewer would cancel because nobody had signed up. And I figured I'd practice my interview skills. Um, the interviewer spotted me as a, uh, a ringer within minutes and said, you know, you don't know anything about retail, do you? Uh, you don't know anything about Abraham and Strauss, do you? And I admitted it all. Uh, we got to chatting, and he basically said, and this is that serendipitous moment, listen, I've got one more offer to make, and uh, I can grant it to you on the spot. If you start on a training squad this next Monday, I win a contest, and the store sends me and my girlfriend to the Caribbean for a weekend. So what are you doing on Monday? This was in October of 1971. So, so I began working as an executive trainee, looking to just mark time 
while I looked for a real J-O-B. And three months later, when there were only 37, only three of the 37 of us who had been hired at that time were left, uh, and, and I was offered an assistant buyer's job, I took it. I had just had three wild and crazy, invigorating months uh, witnessing the madness and mayhem of a holiday season in a major downtown department store, which back in the day was the center of the universe in retail. And I've never looked back. So there you go. What was it that, that you found so engaging and exciting about retail that just kept you, kept you involved over all of these years? Well, I had no problem uh, from an analytical point of view. In fact, I was joining an organization that, that had no discernible skill in, in anal- analyzing or understanding its business. An enormous amount of decision-making was intuitive. Uh, systems were more or less non-existent. I was uh, completely um, capable of using a computer even early on in that, at that time. Uh, you know, I had this ubiquitous slide rule in my pocket, um, but I but I really got jazzed on the the other side of your brain, which is the selection of of things that you believe customers will want to possess, the creative side of the business, and so I really enjoyed from day one the juxtaposition of those two different kinds of skills. Um, I wasn't. Uh, shunted aside as a geek because I was also in the thick of it uh, basically uh, sorting swatches and putting uh, choices up on the wall uh, as I learned how to become a buyer. So, you know, I think that's the fascination of the business, especially as it's evolved into the level of sophistication that we see today. Just before we go to a break, last question on this segment, Mark, what advice do you give to your students who are looking at retail now? It's obviously very different from when you entered. Um, any big words of wisdom that you offer to, uh, to your students as they're thinking about joining a retailer? Well, retail is, uh, is, is a pure performance play. If you have the, the, the talent and the ambition and the grit and the willingness to climb a ladder from the very lowest first rung, it's a wonderful industry to join. Of course, you won't be granted instant uh, gratification by way of title or compensation often. Uh, but but if you're if you're turned on by the wonderment of this marketplace that services billions of customers in an enormous array of ways, uh, it's a great industry to to join. You're listening to uh, Shopcast. This is Michael Dart with our guest today, uh, Professor Mark Cohen. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with some more. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Only 12% of companies from the original Fortune 500 list remain on the list today. How do you ensure your organization stands the test of time? A.T. Carney works with Fortune 500 companies every day to answer this question. Visit ATCarney.com to find out more. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. The American consumer market will soon include six generations for the first time. Prepare for the era of personalization and total connectivity with insights from consumers at 250. Join the conversation at atcarney.com forward slash consumers dash 250. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're tuned in to ShopCast, talking retail strategy, featuring Michael Dart as your host. Now, back to this week's program. You're listening to ShopCast, and I'm your host, Michael Dart, and I'm here with my guest, Mark Cohen. Uh, Mark, we were talking a little bit about 
the advice that you give to folks going into retail today. And you've had great experience with a large number of retailers. You're now uh, obviously back in academia, uh, helping analyze what's going on. Uh, curious, what are some of the big lessons learned from that transition? And, and as you're in your, your post now as a, a professor and you look out about the, the landscape, what do you see as the, the big things that are taking place in retail today? Well, there's, there, there's talk of the retail apocalypse as if there's something wrong with the retail industry, which is a misnomer. The, the industry is fine. There's plenty of customers everywhere in the world. They, they have enormous emerging, expanding disposable income, even if in places like the U.S. they're, they're, uh, they're loading your credit cards up once again. And as human beings, we haven't lost our innate desire to possess things, to acquire things that we really want, but that maybe we don't really need. So there is no limit to the marketplace. The industry is booming in that regard. But of course, inside the industry, there is an apocalypse, especially with regard to legacy retailers, largely physical retailers, who haven't adequately embrace the change that's going on, which is to say the influence of technology and with that e-commerce and all that that brings with it. So, you know, 20 years ago, if you wanted to buy almost anything, unless you were a catalog customer, you had to go shopping. You had to go physically to a place and browse and make a selection. And today, you don't have to go anywhere. Um, you can you, Your choices as a consumer are increasingly unlimited in terms of the breadth of assortment and the, the, uh, the, the destination that you want to make a transaction uh, in. So this is an enormous change that is bringing incredible opportunity to those who are able to take advantage of it, creating tremendous challenges for those who are struggling to um, accommodate these changes or catch up, if you will. I, I find challenge to be a fascinating opportunity and have always felt that way. Uh, I will say this industry is not for the faint of heart because the wild card in all of this is the consumer who can be completely devoted to a trend one day and then abandon it uh, wholesale the next for something else. Mm-hmm. So you've got to have... Um, You've got to be able to wear boots and ballet slippers at the same time. Mm-hmm. What a great image. What a great image that is. Um, I want to take you back to something you said at the beginning just there. Uh, it's something that I find intriguing and slightly tangential, but you mentioned the whole issue of consumer debt. Obviously, we saw you know, what happened uh, right up through the Great Recession when the consumer put too much debt on, but you mentioned that credit card debt is actually increasing quite a lot. Uh, could you add some color on that and how big a deal is this? Well, there, there, there's two elements to this that I think are uh, more or less in position side by side. One is depressive, and that's the presence of something like a trillion dollars of student loan debt, a lot of which is in one form or another of distress, either students who are not paying their, their loans off or are slow paying, uh, and who are employed in, in jobs that will not permit them to overcome that debt readily. And the other is the emergence, which has been reported in the last few months, of consumers at large beginning to use their credit cards as they had been doing in the run-up to the recession to a excessive degree. And, um, and so this, this speaks to an emerging bubble that might just be inflating as we look out toward the next five to six years or five to ten years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's fueling a lot of business. But it's, of course, creating a legacy uh, which will have to be reckoned with in the future. Do you think the the level of debt, particularly student debt, and what many people experienced through the Great Recession, is that one of the drivers for why so many young millennials, young people today, seem to have a very different relationship to possessions? They don't seem to want to own possessions as much as just access them when they need it. They seem to be, you know, arguably less brand sensitive. Um, curious if you think, A, you know, that's true, and if it's a driver, is this whole uh, credit phenomenon that actually took place for, uh, for so many people? Well, the, 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 the millennials, quote-unquote, are, are the generation that's, that's living in and around social media. They are, they, are, um, they are living in a communication universe that didn't exist even just a few years ago. 
And so they don't need to define themselves by virtue of what um, logo appears on the clothing they're wearing or the, the, the imprint that exists on the handbag that they're carrying. Uh, they're able to define themselves by virtue of the, the groups that they are affiliated with, the community they are a part of. And so they've migrated from the acquisition of stuff like their parents uh, to to a predisposition to uh, avoidance of stuff. They're not getting driver's licenses. They're not buying cars necessarily. Um, they're using transportation as an expediency as opposed to a symbol of um, success in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is this per- a permanent change? I don't think anything we know about is permanent in terms mm-hmm. of consumer behavior, but but it's certainly causing the traditional fashion, apparel, and accessories industry fits. Because, mm-hmm. oh, by the way, this, this young consumer is spending an enormous amount of money on, on the devices that enable them to participate technologically. So a lot of their disposable income is going into smartphones, tablets, laptops, cable access, things of that sort. These are, these are expenses that didn't exist 20 years ago in many respects. Mm-hmm. So when you think about all of these factors and all of these things going on, what are the implications then for retail stores? What does that future look like and, and how do they meet the shifting, changing customer expectations? Well, you know, in a sense, uh, uh, retailers have to stand for the brand that they represent, and this is not new. But whereas they've been able to get away with carelessness, sloppiness, uh, less attentive focus on their brand and brand equity, now they, they can't get away with anything. So they have to represent authenticity. They have to represent consistency. They have to stand for something that creates a driveway decision. And they also have to contend with the fact that many customers more and more every day expect transparency between what is physically available for them to uh, sample and transact against and what is online. And, And so, you know, millennials assume transparency and consistency and they gravitate where they find it. They're increasingly uh, abandoning, if in fact they ever affiliated themselves, with legacy brands that just present an array of stuff. You Mm -hmm. know, it's a store full of merchandise that doesn't stand for anything. It isn't a lifestyle manifestation. It, It just is a lot of stuff. And the motivational basis of that stuff has been uh, promoting the contents on a regular basis. And as you begin to fill up the calendar and approach and exceed 50% off all the time, you lose the, uh, the appeal that customers have, especially young people. You mentioned uh, um, that people don't want to go to retailers that really don't stand for anything. And you wrote a very interesting article on the department stores, particularly focused on Macy's, uh, because obviously, you know, one of the big values that those stores brought was a collection of staff, making it easy for people to shop different departments, go to one place. And obviously, in their era, they've been incredible destinations of theater and experience and excitement. What is the future for, for, for players like that, given what you just said and given what uh, we're seeing with a lot of the uh, the millennials? Well, I, I don't want to upset anybody who might be listening to this, but I think the future is dim. Frankly, the department store, which used to be the destination, uh, began to share market share with uh, specialty stores that filled the concourses between department stores. And now, of course, the Internet has become the marketplace of choice. The department stores are competing with, in many cases, the very brands that made up their assortments in the first place who've gone vertical and have created physical stores of their own and web businesses of their own. The, the, the word that is bandied about that, frankly, I hate, but it is accurate, is curation. Mm-hmm. And the, the, uh, the degree to which department stores put assortments together that are appealing, that are differentiated, that are attractive, that are interesting, and that are fun to shop um, is the degree to which they succeed or fail. And frankly, today, only a few are really practicing that high art of merchandising that made them famous way back in the day. Most are not. 
Mm-hmm. So you see a pretty pretty bleak picture for most department stores. Do you see winners coming out of that, and and who would be the winners? Well, I, I think best of breed might be Nordstrom, but they've also poisoned their own well in in, in that they have ex, they have invested heavily and continue to expand in their in their outlet division called the Rack, mm-hmm. and the Rack is in many cases in very close proximity to their 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 core stores. Their thesis that a young person with less income would start affiliating with Nordstrom through the rack and then trade up and graduate into the store itself is probably not holding water any longer. Um, So I wonder whether the excellent customer service presentation and curation that they've exhibited in their stores uh, is going to enable them to continue to be successful. I don't think Macy's has any direction that makes any sense. I've been very critical of them. I've basically accused them of nothing more than uh, uh, sloganeering. The magic of Macy's means what? And the answer is, in my mind, not much, mm-hmm. if anything. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the department store industry has, as you know, rolled up through serial consolidation for the last 25 years, and they're right. now in an end stage in all of that. And as they begin to close stores, because more and more of their business is transferring over to their Internet site, uh, they're losing their their grip as a consequential member of the marketplace. We're going to continue our conversation, Mark, in a second, but we can take another break right now. This is Shopcast. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. The American consumer market will soon include six generations for the first time. Prepare for the era of personalization and total connectivity with insights from consumers at 250. Join the conversation at atcarney.com forward slash consumers dash 250. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Only 12% of companies from the original Fortune 500 list remain on the list today. How do you ensure your organization stands the test of time? A.T. Carney works with Fortune 500 companies every day to answer this question. Visit atcarney.com to find out more. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're tuned in to ShopCast, talking retail strategy, featuring Michael Dart as your host. Now, back to this week's program. Hello, welcome back to uh, ShopCast. I'm Michael Dart. I'm here with uh, Mark Cohen. And uh, Mark, we ended uh, uh, the last segment on a very interesting point about the demise of some of the established uh, retailers and the challenges for department stores. Really interested in your thoughts around the new and emerging uh, retailers, brands that are proliferating as well. Why Why are we seeing so many coming up and uh, what does it take to really create a successful new, I guess the, the terminology is digitally native vertical brand for these, uh, these online players? Well, it has never been more efficient and effective uh, to get into the retail business. You know, years ago, not too many years ago, you had to sign a lease and open a store that involved an enormous financial commitment. 
You had to fill the store with inventory, whether the inventory was going to successfully sell and turn or not. Uh, today, uh, anyone with an idea can create a website. The inventory is hidden from view. They can facilitate their business using third parties. And so we're seeing tens of thousands of emergent businesses coming in on the tail of the Amazons. Uh, most of them will fail, but some will emerge and become the new powerhouses, though they may never become national or global as some of the legacy players have become, uh, they're taking enormous share in small bits and pieces. Now, what makes them successful is the degree to which they bring differentiated assortments with a story that consumers uh, notice and um, find kinship with. And of course, then, of course, they have to delight their customers as the basis of being able to stay in business. And some of them are going to be able to do that. Are there any ones that jump out at you that uh, you think are doing a particularly good job on that uh, that front right now? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put in a plug for um, an emergent business that was founded by two former students here at Columbia. I have no mm-hmm. skin in this game, so please don't challenge my uh, motivation in bringing them up by name. It's called the, their, their company is called the Thursday Boot Company. Uh-huh. These are two guys from a private equity and uh, um, uh, financial background who decided they, A, wanted to go into their own business, create their own business, and didn't want to go back to the industry that they had uh, been part of before coming to graduate school. They came and sat down and said, we want to start a men's boot, a men's boot business. Mm-hmm. online, and I said, what do you guys know about boots? And the answer was nothing. What do you know about menswear? The answer is nothing. Well, to make a very long story short, they've gone to school. They did an enormous amount of work in learning the underpinnings of a very specific niche business. Uh, mm-hmm. They were very conservative and careful in how they managed the limited funds that they had available to work with. And, uh, you know, eight months into business, they're break-even, and two years downstream, they're in the accessory business and probably likely to migrate into men's shoes as a, as a companion to the boot business they've created. They sell traditional, classic men's dress and casual boots, wow. very high quality, very moderate price. They found white space in the marketplace and they've taken tremendous advantage uh, um, of it. And was the white space a pricing advantage or was it a way in which they could just reach customers with a unique innovative marketing message that others hadn't used before. What, what was that white space? Well, I said to them, tell me about the opportunity as you see it. And they said, we wear boots and all of our friends and our, our cohorts who share our lifestyle wear boots. We don't think you should have to spend six, seven, or $800 for a high-quality, great-looking pair of boots, mm-hmm. men's boots that last mm-hmm. a long time and, and becomes a, a trusted companion. And so they created a line of very high-quality, classically styled men's boots that retail for, you know, two to $300. They don't have a discount component. They're almost all online through their own website. Um, they've built their business based on having really great product at really great prices that um, delight their customers who keep coming back. Now, one of the key things that seems to happen for a lot of these brands is that they immediately get to a certain scale and then decide they need stores again. You know, Warby Parker, Allbirds, uh, Everlane, others. Why is that? And does that, do you think, change what's required to be successful for these businesses? Well, many of many of these businesses, like, for instance, Warby Parker, uh, stop growing via their internet business, which, which mm-hmm. is what they used as their launch platform. In other words, they, they, they appeal to a cohort. They do lots of business, but their cohort doesn't buy their product every day. And so they run out of gas. Next step on the uh, journey is to open up a showroom or a store. And mm-hmm. what Warby Parker is doing is frankly becoming, uh, not to take anything away from their success, they're they're more or less becoming a chain of physical um, eyewear stores. Yeah. They they have excellent assortments. They have excellent pricing. They provide excellent service. But I predict that uh, more and more of their business will come from a more and more traditional approach to the business. And I think that many 
uh, niche players in uh, e-commerce find themselves uh, sort of forced down that road. Now, the question is, to what degree do they invest in physical space? What kind of geography are they going to uh, invest in? How will they manage the investment uh, at large, which is daunting? Uh, therein lies the rub as to who's going to succeed and who's going to fail. Yeah, it seems to me, and, and I don't know many retailers have done this very well, but with so much square footage that's underutilized and not very productive because of everything you've talked about, why aren't we seeing more partnerships? And uh, maybe we should be and we will, but why aren't we seeing more partnerships between people like Warby Parker and established retailers that can immediately help them blow out across the, the country with a great product at a great price as much as anything else, um, rather than them having to build out everything themselves? I mean, is that a viable strategy for these guys? Well, the problem is retailers are congenitally unable to collaborate comfortably. I mean, this is an age-old behavior. Um, we'll carry your brand, but we'll decide how it's going to be positioned and priced. Uh, yep. And so, so many of the legacy businesses that really should be seeking out uh, partners, especially contemporary partners, um, really either can't quite pull the trigger on the deals they have to strike or they're too limited in the manner in which they go about this. Now, Nordstrom did a deal with Bonobos, and they've done um, some collaborations with some others, which have been um, likely somewhat successful. I would encourage them, if they were asking me, to do a lot more of that. Uh, But at the end of the day, you begin to um, uh, face the fact that you're trading your equity for someone else's, and that becomes problematic in in and of itself. Do you think these startups have actually created brands and the way in which we think about brands? I mean, is there, is there a lot of longevity here for them? Or is this, is this just a, a fad phase we're going through where, you know, they'll emerge, quickly get to a critical mass, but find it hard to get to a scale and then dissipate over time? What's your, what's your prognosis on that? Well, a lot of these emergent businesses really don't have a brand. They have a, they have a name or a word or a phrase, but they don't have mm-hmm. a, a strategy behind what they're presenting to consumers. So they, they're, they're sort of flash in the pan, lots of interest at the outset, and then they fade away very quickly. At, at, when all is said and done, uh, because it's so easy to get into the business, there is an enormous flood of newness coming into the marketplace. Yeah. And uh, millennials are brand sensitive. Uh, they, are, they are very, very uh, uh, willing to uh, check things out. But after they do, they have to have a very good reason to become loyalists. And loyal behavior is something their parents may have exhibited, but something they don't seem to feel is important. Their loyalty is measured in very short bursts of time as opposed to their lifetime, if you will. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether uh, the, the, uh, the brands of the past will reemerge. You know, this, this kind of behavior may very well cycle back to where it was uh, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Difficult to know. Mm-hmm. One thing which I hear from a lot of these uh, smaller companies, uh, some startups, some established, but uh, relatively small is then, how do I play with Amazon in this world? And, you know, it's obviously a big challenge. A lot of people think that Amazon's out to destroy brands. Curious on your thought on how people should think about playing with Amazon. Well, you can't, you know, you can't, you can't play with Amazon. You can't fight Amazon. You can't overcome Amazon. I think what Walmart is doing is, in many respects, a fool's errand in that regard. Amazon's basic premise is that they are a marketplace for goods in all categories and all sectors, both direct-to-consumer and increasingly on a business-to-business basis. They, Mm -hmm. They are the portal between folks who consume things and uh, access. So, so how does someone play? Someone has to represent something that's uh, focal, differentiated, pointed, uh, that breaks through the clutter, um, that, that offers some measure of experience or uh, pleasure or consistency or authenticity that Amazon will never represent because Amazon won't stand for the brand in a consequential way. Though they may show a lot of assortment, they're not going to devote uh, uh, anything really uh, powerful behind the brand other than just showing availability of goods. So 
what Amazon does is create an enormous willingness for customers to transact through e-commerce. They create an expectation of uh, web architecture and logistics mm-hmm. efficiency that everybody's got to rise to. Um, some people view that as a barrier. I view that as a wonderful um, uh, uh, target, if you will, which, which when achieved puts you on an equal footing in that regard. Right. Last, last question, uh, Mark. We're going to hit our time limit here. And so uh, briefly, can you just uh, uh, expand on why Walmart's strategy? They get a lot of good press for their online strategy. Why do you think that's a fool's errand? Well, Walmart doesn't have Amazon Web Services to fuel their business. Uh, so, so the, though they make an enormous amount of money, they have a tremendous amount of cash flow. It's a diversion from their stores, uh, their stores business. Uh, they're also chasing the, the, the I, I keep saying they're the number five horse in a two horse race. They claim mm-hmm. that by 2020, uh, Walmart.com, Jet.com will have something like 200 SKUs available for consumers. Well, in 2017, Amazon had something like 570 million SKUs, and by 2020, Amazon will probably have well over a billion. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I don't think you catch that number one horse. Right. Amazon also stands for an awful lot more by way of affinity of customers through Prime and all the things that they provide through Prime, including media content, for example, that a Walmart really can't even begin to achieve, at least not now. Well, you've been listening to uh, uh, Professor Mark Cohen. If you have any uh, questions uh, that you'd like to send in or comments, uh, you can do so, as I said, at uh, shopcast at atcarney.com. And uh, we would love your comments. Mark, I want to thank you for being on the show. This has been really uh, thought-provoking and uh, really appreciate it. You bet. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Only 12% of companies from the original Fortune 500 list remain on the list today. How do you ensure your organization stands the test of time? A.T. Carney works with Fortune 500 companies every day to answer this question. Visit atcarney.com to find out more. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The American consumer market will soon include six generations for the first time. Prepare for the era of personalization and total connectivity with insights from consumers at 250. Join the conversation at atcarney.com forward slash consumers dash 250. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're tuned in to ShopCast, talking retail strategy, featuring Michael Dart as your host. Now, back to this week's program. Hello, I'm Michael Dart, and you're listening to ShopCast. I'm now joined by my second guest today, uh, Mike Brown. Mike is a partner at AT Carney, and he has recently written a very interesting article on the future of malls, and he's quite bullish about physical uh, retail, despite everything that uh, uh, we see going on, uh, feels like there's uh, tremendous opportunities here. So, welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, curious. I look at uh, a lot of data on what's happening with malls. I see the uh, uh, the mall read index for Bloomberg has dropped off a cliff versus the rest of the read index that doesn't cover malls. I see negative foot traffic, not only for uh, the bottom-performing malls, but also near, most recently, the data suggests even high-performing malls are seeing negative foot traffic. So, what have you done in your 
research and studies that uh, actually suggest that uh, there's a bright future out there. Michael, we really do believe there is a bright future for malls, but it's not in its current form in its state. We think the Mm -hmm. malls are at a crossroads at this point in time. They can follow their current path of duplicative and vanilla experiences, or they can reinvent themselves to what we believe should be consumer engagement spaces. Those are spaces that are entertainment, experiential, retail, residential-based, and really bring people to a community center where they can engage with brands and experiences that they'd like to have. And and I I agree with you on that. A question uh, I have around it is, can you do that in 1,400 malls or you know, my, my view is you can do that in the top two to 300, create these great spaces. But when you start to go through, you know, the long tail, if you like, of these locations, it's very challenging. Um, what's your answer to that? I mean, is there, the, is there the capital available? Is there the return available to be able to repurpose these malls in the way in which you describe? Ever since Southdale Center opened in 1956 as America's first enclosed mall, the malls mm-hmm. have grown explosively in the U.S., They've grown as the population has grown and spread across the country. And there's no doubt we have too much retail space in the U.S., where we average about 24 square feet per capita compared to Canada with 16 and European countries with four to five square feet of retail space per consumer. So, Michael, every mall cannot be reinvented this way, but I think we see models emerging for some of these other malls and these other shopping center spaces that could make them viable again. Any concrete examples you can offer of shopping centers that, you know, you think uh, or formats that are showing us the way to the future that are doing a good job on this or, or not? Well, I'll start with some interesting ones that are transforming some of the of the more budget-type malls or the, some of the malls that have seemed to be lost forever. And there are two. There is Plaza Mayor and Plaza mm-hmm. Fiesta. Plaza Mayor uh-huh. is in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and yep. Plaza Fiesta in Duluth, in DeKalb County, Georgia, are both focusing on the Hispanic community, opening Hispanic-themed stores, entertainment venues, catering halls for quinceaneras, and really using this space that was given up for dead to service a underserved population in this new in a new way. We're mm-hmm. also seeing some innovation even on some of the major malls when it comes to at this point in time really starting to take the space and find new purposes for it. So for example, Westfield is seeking permits for a $1.5 billion plan to replace its promenade mall in Woodland Hills, California with a mixed-use development that would include boutiques, restaurants, residences, offices, two hotels, and be anchored by a concert venue. So we're starting oh, yeah. to see this trend towards these malls starting to look as, as attractions as opposed to anchors or anchor department stores to be the true draw for their centers. Mm-hmm. And you and you think that can spread across um, a large number of the the malls that are out there? Yeah, I mean, you look at the capital as you just mentioned on the, on the last example. I mean, that's an enormous amount of capital. Westfield's obviously been incredibly successful in investing in the malls and doing a great job. But I, I again, I guess push you a little bit on on how do you think about the you know, bottom nine hundred or the bottom five hundred? What's going to happen there? Can they be repurposed? I think they can be repurposed, Michael, and what we're seeing, what we'll see here is a trend of really creating suburban downtowns and using the space that's occupied for malls to re- mm-hmm. with, for residential use, office, mixed use. As we need more and more facilities for health care, they'll start to move out to the centers. We'll start to see this space really be repurposed for meeting the needs of specific demographic groups, whether it's baby boomers who are looking for a venue with microbreweries and entertainments and their health clubs, or an aging population that would like the convenience of their health care and medical needs located where they might want to shop and get their groceries and also could live closer to. Mm-hmm. And does your study uh, and the thought process you've gone through uh, relate to you know, outside of malls as well? And are there any big trends that you see occurring, you know, sort of off the mall locations? It, the work we did, Michael, focused not only on the enclosed malls, but also on shopping centers, 
mm-hmm. open air centers. And again, this property and this real estate has really seen tremendous growth as we've seen chains like TJ Maxx and Ross stores continue their growth and start to relocate customers from the mall space out to the suburban shopping centers. So we see growth not only in the enclosed malls, but also in the more shopping center-oriented or open-air centers. So I guess my final question, Mike, is you mentioned the square footage per capita here in the U.S. versus uh, uh, Canada and, and Western Europe being so, so much higher. Five years from now, does that gap still exist, or are we going to see that gap narrow with a lot of uh, shrinkage and closures in, uh, in the retail square footage here in the U.S.? It all depends, Michael, on how we define retail. If we're looking for the selling of goods as we do today, the gap will close tremendously. But when we look at this space serving a need for entertainment venues, more services, starting to bring to the mall those services that have been outside it or an expanding set of services that the consumers are looking for, I think we'll see some, that space really remain relatively constant as to where it is today. Okay, uh, that's really great. Uh, if anybody wanted to get a copy of the report, what's the best way of doing that? It is available on A.T. Carney's website, and it's called The Future of Shopping Centers. So, Mike Brown, thanks very much for joining us and uh, taking a little bit of a contrarian view in terms of uh, your optimism for physical retail. Um, that concludes uh, today's podcast. Uh, this is Shopcast. I'm Michael Dart. Again, uh, look forward to any comments, questions that you might have uh, on today's uh, session. And uh, want to thank uh, both the guests for joining us. And uh, with that, I look forward to speaking to you all again next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to ShopCast, talking retail strategy. Please join host Michael Dart for another edition of the program next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And check out past episodes at any time on demand. We hope you enjoy your week.